One of the most interesting and exciting services which the University of Wisconsin Parkside provides uh, for our community is their series called Science Night. And they bring in the most fascinating array of guests to talk about uh, quite a wide range of scientific issues. And tonight is a talk which sounds uh, exceptionally interesting. It is called Young Male Syndrome, Evolutionary Perspectives on the Role of Testosterone and Risk-Taking. It's a program presented by University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Associate Professor of Anthropology, Benjamin Campbell. And it takes a look at what uh, has long been observed as risky behavior among males, and young males in, in, in particular. And uh, it is uh, an effort to try to maybe separate uh, easy mistaken assumptions from what, in fact, really is the case when, uh, w when we really carefully study how young males behave and what might be behind uh, the choices which lead at least some young males to fairly reckless, risky behavior. The uh, program is going to be uh, tonight at 7 p.m. in room 103 of Greenquist Hall. And uh, the public is invited to attend, and especially high school and middle school students and faculty interested in math and science are encouraged to attend any and all of these Science Night presentations. Admission is free, and I'm very honored to have with me Professor Benjamin Campbell. We welcome you to the morning show. Well, thank you very much, Greg. I wonder, uh, ahead of talking specifically about your career, if you could just say a word about your own academic discipline of anthropology. Uh, I have a feeling that is one of those disciplines which a lot of us don't fully appreciate nor understand. Well, yeah, because anthropology, um, as, a, as the title says, is the study of mankind, and that spans all cultures. Uh, it, ex it includes the archaeological evidence for past cultures and also for evolution, um, including our near-primate relatives, including the fossil record of our evolution, and increasingly including how our biology and our behavior is the product of that evolution. So it's both um, everywhere and um, sometimes maybe a little indistinct because we cover so much. Right. What drew you to uh, study anthropology and ultimately to uh, pursue it as your career? Any, anything or anyone in particular? Well, I think, I think like for many anthropologists, what's exciting is that we do a lot of naturalistic work. We go out. We, we, uh, I've spent time with uh, people in the bush in Africa we spend time in cities watching people. We're trying to get at what's real and authentic, uh, which is much harder to do, say, if you're a psychologist in a laboratory and you set up the conditions that you want people to react in, or if you're looking just at their physiological response. So I think the real strength of anthropologists is holistic perspective that you have to take in a little bit of everything if you want to understand the human condition. Hmm. Where did you do your, your own study? Uh, you mean my, my training? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so I got uh, actually um, biology and zoology degrees at Indiana University, and then I got a degree in anthropology at, at Harvard. And, of course, that right there helps us understand how anthropology is a discipline which strongly intersects with other disciplines. And I should think the, the, the topic that you're talking about tonight is also a really good example of that. I mean, something that has 
uh, a heavy biological and psychological component to it. Oh, yeah, and I think that's one of the real excitements about anthropology. Uh, for instance, the kind of some of the work that I do in Africa has only become possible because we can now have non-invasive ways of sampling hormones, for instance, or looking at genetics. And so we can take some questions that have been fundamentally interesting to people here, scientific sorts of questions, and go into the field and try and address them in very different circumstances among people who are herding animals for a living, who maybe have never seen a doctor. And so this attempt to really understand the human species, not just our own culture. Uh, and one thing that, that I think is important about that is um, to paraphrase William James, our experience is limited and overfed. That is, we live in this very nice environment with little disease and a lot of um, food. Most of the world doesn't. And if we're to understand their experience, we have to go to them and try to understand how they live so it gives us a full perspective on, on human beings. I see, because otherwise it would be easy for us to proceed on false assumptions that uh, that daily life for most people on this planet is roughly similar to our own. And what you're suggesting is, in fact, it is drastically different. That's right. And I think that's where your, your point about examining assumptions is so important. We, we, it's, this is especially true for people who want to make an evolutionary analysis of humans, because we now live in an energy-rich, low-disease environment. For two and a half million years, that was not the case about humans. So if we're to understand how our biology underlies anything about our behavior, we have to understand it in this other context. Hmm. So tell us what led you to become interested in uh, the behavior of, of males and, and young males specifically, Aside from the fact that once upon a time you yourself were a young male and yeah. are still a male, yeah. I mean, I assume yeah. at some point something drew you uh, in, in, into this as a as a field of specific endeavor. Yeah, well, it, at the most most general level, um, anthropologists have talked a lot about women and their biology um, because of the intimate uh, way in which women are connected to reproduction. And people weren't really asking the same question about the biology of male reproduction and its evolutionary basis. So I'm a man, but it also was an open intellectual field. And as I studied it more, it seemed like the key issue was not so much the reproductive biology per se, but how it was associated with men's behavior. Um, and I think, I think this process of young men is so important culturally in our society because it is a group that um, has some real difficulties. And we have a large number of African Americans, for instance, young men are incarcerated in our society. And if we could understand something more about that, it might be very helpful to society. I wonder if you can help us understand what, it, what it's like for you to analyze something that I am just suspecting is not all that much a part of your own life. Uh, I mean, you know, if, if you hired me to be your, your lab assistant doing this research, I think one of the weirdest things about that, aside from the fact that I'm a music professor and you wouldn't know <laughs> what I'm doing, yeah. is just the fact that I would be studying uh, all this risky male behavior 
which is not at all a part of who I happen to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, yeah. I, 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 I am about as polar opposite from this as as you could possibly be, and especially when I was a young male. I mean, I was scared to death of anything that even remotely smelled of risky behavior for a whole host of reasons. And I don't, I don't know what you were like as a young male, but I wonder how much some of this general behavior among young males is sort of at odds with who you happened mm-hmm. to be. And, and if that colors this experience for you or, or maybe enriches it or complicates it in any way. Well, you have to remember that, that I may spend some time in the laboratory, but I also go to, off to Africa uh, and study uh, people in, in the bush. I mean, you know, kind of, and Indiana Jones kinds of things. Uh, so I like a little bit of risk myself. I mean, um, but 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 you're right. I think that's um, it, it's an attempt to get a perspective on that, and, a, and an attempt to get a sort of opposite perspective coming from the other end, as you will. But I think one of the things that I've searched very hard to do in a, in an intellectual way is to understand that risk taking is decision making under uncertain conditions. So everyone is forced to deal with that issue, whereas risky risky behavior like crimes or drug use, that's slightly different. That's the extreme outcome of that. So I think risk-taking in that sense is meaningful to everybody. Hmm. It, it's part of our lives to some extent. I suppose even if, yeah, even if we sort of run the other way from it, just the fact that there might be somewhere in our being that impulse whether we act on it or not that's right that's so, exactly right so we are all part of this this story one way or another yeah whether we're a law-abiding boy scout growing up or 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 someone from the outsiders yeah we're speaking with uh ben campbell uh, who is a professor of anthropology at the university of wisconsin milwaukee and tonight at the university of wisconsin parkside he is giving a, a title called Young Male Syndrome, Evolutionary Perspectives on the Role of Testosterone and Risk-Taking. Uh, so take us uh, through the process by which you have been carefully examining uh, the topic that, that you are going to be talking about tonight. Uh, I mean, where does one begin yes. in trying to examine something like this? Well, I think I think that's just such a wonderful, wonderful question, and partly, of course, because I spend a lot of time thinking about where does one begin. Um, and in some sense, you know, one always begins by looking at uh, one's intellectual forefathers. Uh, there's a couple of Canadian psychologists, uh, Margot Wilson and Martin Daly, wrote a very influential paper a while back called the young male syndrome, where they were looking at age patterns of homicide, and they pointed out that men are more likely to to produce homicide, and that young men are especially more likely to. Uh, And that, of course, is is an intriguing and important kind of finding. Uh, But what they also suggested was that this might be associated with what they called a taste for risk. And we might see similar patterns in gambling or in drug addiction, etc., and um, so, obviously, homicide's important. Uh, it varies tremendously across cultures. It uh, uh, um, is very prominent in many small-scale societies, but it also mixes up a lot of social and biological factors. And so, um, with my colleagues, um, Corinne Apicella, Anna Draber, Peter Gray, and others, we wanted to look more carefully at 
what might actually be a biological component and what might that taste for risk consist of. So, and could we link that to a biological factor? We know that testosterone is high in young men, and we know it's higher in men than in women. So that's a, a perfect supposition, and many people had that, that that's what would be driving this pattern of the age-related increase in risk-taking among young men. But in order to see if testosterone is doing that, you have to get a measure of risk-taking. As I said, we wanted to look at decision-making under uncertain conditions. Um, so we just, we just uh, recruited 100 uh, young men off the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, got their testosterone levels because of you could do it in saliva, got a measure of financial risk-taking, just how much money were they willing to gamble on a, on a lottery where we'd actually pay them for winning the lottery, and look to see if, if the things are associated or not. Hmm. Um, yeah. what, what did these young men know uh, going into this? We, had explain, we explained the study um, quite, quite, quite well, I think. It's, um, we're not psychologists. We don't have to deceive people as to the real intent. And I don't think, um, you know, I don't think in any way them knowing what we're doing would necessarily affect the results. I that that I might very well be. I'm I am a little surprised though. It 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 seems like uh, if if somebody knew that I'm I want to study your behavior and to see uh, how much you like risk. Um, it it seems at least like the potential might be there that that someone's behavior might be that that they might think about their own behavior in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. Uh, what uh, what made you so so certain that uh, that that wouldn't be uh, uh, an undue influence? Well, I guess we we you know we didn't we didn't tell them what result we were looking for for one thing, and and secondly the kinds of tasks that we gave them I think are a little hard to uh, other people have used them they've used them fine, and they they aren't sort of you know. We don't say, do you like risk? We ask, you know, do you like, we have, for instance, a questionnaire about sensation seeking, and there's 40 different questions in there uh, that you sort of add up. Um, we tell them that the financial risk taking, which is a very important part of this, here's uh, 250 hypothetical dollars. If you, how much of it do you want to gamble on a lottery where if you win, you will get two and a half times as much as you put into it. And that's real money. You'll get back real money. Hmm. So it, it seems to work. And that's, you know, <laughs> I guess as a scientist, I often ask myself the same question, and uh, we go with the results. So I guess, I guess what you're saying is that you, you really worked hard to, to pose these questions in such a way that there wasn't a right and a wrong answer. That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, don't sort of, you know, and try to get people to answer them, you know, pretty quickly. So they're not thinking about it. They're just responding. So if I understand correctly, you you tested the, the testosterone uh, levels yep. amongst these 100 assorted men, young men, mm-hmm. and also of those same men asked these questions about the, the behavior, the, their behaviors in, in, in real life. Yes, that's right, yeah. And uh, 
going into this, uh, were you expecting to find a certain correlation between behavior and testosterone? Or were you really trying to go into this with a, with a blank slate of expectation? Well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have done the research if there wasn't some reason to expect an association. Uh, I mean, that's a, what a hypothesis is. Um, and so based on everything else we already know, we'd expect uh, these young guys with higher testosterone levels to also um, be more risky, okay? And there's been some work especially and also more sensation-seeking, that is more interested, say, in thrills and adventures, are more um, interested in socializing at parties. And there there's already been some research done on that sensation-seeking part, but none on the financial risk-taking. So we're trying to extend that. Hmm. Um, and also, so that we had a clear idea about. But interestingly enough, often when you do science, something that you hadn't even thought about comes up. So we also found that the masculinity of men's faces predicted their financial risk-taking um, as well. And this is, you can, you can um, I mean, it's this, you can interpret this. Uh, men's faces are considered more masculine based on a lot of other work when the lower jaw is, is longer and bigger and also wider cheeks a little bit. And as, as opposed to somebody looking more boyish? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And um, we know that that process is related to testosterone exposure during puberty. So this is an intriguing finding. You know, the finding that higher testosterone would be associated with more risk-taking, you know, that's interesting, that's good, but it wasn't unexpected. But that more masculine-looking men would have more risk-taking, that's intriguing. Although, although it's in, one would presume caused by the same thing. Yes. Well, and that's one of the things that we were very much um, out for here was pe- people had looked at the effects of testosterone and sensation-seeking, testosterone and risk-taking, and testosterone and impulsivity, and you can imagine all these are related. They're different versions of the same thing. But people had also looked at the prenatal exposure to testosterone and financial risk-taking. So your digit, your ratio of your second digit to your fourth digit predicts financial risk-taking. Now that's, you know, on the surface, boy, that's intriguing, right? What, what could something going on in, birth, in, in utero predict what's going to happen 25 years later? But there's some fairly good evidence that that ratio is associated with the amount of testosterone exposure that you get as a fetus. Wow. So we wanted to look at all three different aspects of testosterone exposure. So as you say, we're trying to do this carefully. We're trying to ask, okay, if testosterone is really important, is it the prenatal effect? Is it a pubertal effect? Is it a current effect? So in other words, when one is exposed or experiencing testosterone and its effects, when that is occurring in one's lifespan, that might have some bearing on, I mean, maybe at some point testosterone is a more powerful That's right. effect than it might be at some other point in one's life. That's right, yeah. Fascinating. And just to be clear for our listeners, when you're talking about digits, 
I think you're talking about the length of the fingers on on the hand. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. No, <laughs> yes. I mean, just I, I I assume that, but I just want to make make sure people understand that. So we really are talking about something that, at a glance, we would never dream there is it, it could have any possible connection whatsoever. That's right. And in fact, you do see some connection. Right, and it's and as you can imagine. I mean, it's not that this, the ratio of your fingers it causes your behavior. It's an index of how hormones affected your brain. And the results are a little bit conflicting. Hmm. But there are enough positive results that people say, yes, okay, that's a marker of the impact of testosterone on your brain. Fascinating. Yeah. Of course, one thing that's intriguing about the whole thing of, of a mature-looking face, mature, more masculine-looking face, is that in some cases, I suppose, that would allow a young male perhaps entrance someplace uh, and, and perhaps yeah. give him the opportunity to engage in still further risky behavior versus... Right. I mean, versus somebody who really looks more like they're 11 years old than... Right. Than... So, 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 we, so there are a couple possibilities here. That effect, the, the fact that puberty, the, that your facial masculinity is associated with behavior could reflect hormone impact on your brain during puberty. It could also just reflect the response to your face, right, as you've suggested. So we can't differentiate between those two things at this point. But importantly, we're increasingly understanding, there's been a lot of work in neuroscience now, that the brain is still developing during puberty and into young adulthood. And the part of the brain that's still developing, especially the prefrontal cortex, it's called, the part that is responsible for decision-making and judgment, does seem to have receptors for testosterone. So it may be that that developing brain is, in fact, being influenced by how much testosterone a boy is producing. Hmm. This is a, I think this is a fascinating hypothesis for further uh, investigation. And there's some, you know, some work that, bits and pieces of work that support that, but we don't know nearly enough about it at this point. Right. Um, explain uh, what amounts to kind of the subtitle of your talk. Um, well, first of all, young male syndrome, which is the heading of your of your talk, is that a term that's been around a long, long time? Right. Like that's been around, say, for at least since nineteen eighty five. Is that a long time? <laughs> <laughs> in some respects, yes. Yeah. In some respects, no. <laughs> no, right. I think it's a phenomenon that's been around for a long time. Um, just to give you a, a sense of that, I was in, I've worked with a group in northern Kenya called the Trikana, and I was in the, in the back of a Land Rover with some of the men, and I asked them through an interpreter um, something about... Um, interaction of their their daughters and teenage boys and this one man said we know teenage boys and it was very clear right that maybe teenage boys will act very similar all across the world uh, so in that sense it's been known for a long long time i think um but so this is this is you know this is at least uh, 20 years old then and i think as i said it's uh guided a certain amount of thinking about what's going on uh, with young men. 
So that, so that is, I think, an important and interesting social question, irregardless. Hmm. Right. The subtitle is Evolutionary Perspectives on the Role of Testosterone and Risk-Taking. I'm not sure we've yet really explored that very much. That is, what, what evolution has to do with this or the way in which that deepens our understanding of this possible connection. That is, looking at it from an evolutionary perspective. Right. So um, I think it's very important, and this is part of trying to understand what might be going on in young men somewhat more carefully. So the, as I mentioned before, um, current sort of perspectives say, oh, young men are more risky. They have, men have more testosterone than women, uh, and young men have more testosterone than old men. So we said, okay, testosterone is an evolutionary substrate. It's something that can be, it's a physical thing that can be affected by evolution, its production, its levels, what its impact is. So we want to look at that more carefully. And we found, we found that, okay, it is associated with financial risk-taking. It is associated with boredom susceptibility. And so, so is facial masculinity. We, that's a biological explanation. The next question is how do you understand, is that a product of evolution or not? And we can't just jump to the assumption that it is. Because as I said before, we live in an environment that's very different than the one we evolved, evolved in. So, case in point, um, we all assume that young men have higher testosterone levels than older men. Well, I have uh, worked with um, a group in Kenya, two groups of pastoral nomads, one's the Turkana, another called the Ariel. And these are men who are very lean. Um, I, one summer I measured people up to six foot five, and nobody weighed more than 129 pounds. And this reflects undernutrition and, and a high level of physical activity, very different than what we see. Now, what we find there is testosterone levels among men do not decline with age. Hmm. Okay, so wait a minute. Is this... In, by now, as I mentioned, as an anthropologist, I want to be able to make an argument that fits other populations, too. Wait, so is, this, is testosterone not crucial to this, or, or is it, right? And this is, these, are, these are populations that herd cattle and camels and goats. One of the things they do is they steal them from, other, from neighboring tribes. Uh, one of the early British administrators called the Turkana the fiercest fighting people he'd ever seen. Their, their life as men is probably a lot about risk. So um, here's the first question. Okay, is testosterone, is it high levels of testosterone in young men? So that's, a, that's what you have to start to do. Okay, secondly, um, you have to think from an evolutionary point of view well, what about our primates, the closest, our closest relatives, the primates? And what we see in there, in macaques, in vervets, that have been looked at carefully, yes, young men, I mean young individuals, young males, tend to be risky. Even among primates? Yeah, even among primates. Um, and the reason they're risky is because they have to leave the group they were born in and fight their way into a different group 
in order to have, ever have the chance to reproduce. So they're not going to they're not going to survive any other way. That's right. That's right. And I think so. There's a model there for humans, but the point is that is that humans might have some similarities, but there are other ways that we can survive. So we have to look at that primate data and think exactly what does it say about humans. Now, if you look more closely about what's going on in many subsistence societies of men, is that they do sort of leave and have to come back into the society. So, for instance, among the REL that I'm working with now, there is a class of men from about 14 to 28. Their job is to, is to take care of the cattle, guard them, and maybe steal them from other groups. Only when they're done being warriors can they then come back to the group, settle down, and get married. And then they're called elders. And, I, I, you know, they're elders by the age of 30. Hmm. <laughs> but so, so the point is there's some similarities there, right, about the role of taking risks, but but it it's very it looks very different than just you know homicide or drug addiction or crime. So even at a glance, uh, I mean, especially at a glance, we, it might not look at all the same. And what you're suggesting is that the closer you look, the more it starts to look like perhaps a similar kind of impulse just being lived out in dramatically different ways. Yes, yes. And I think, I think that dramatically different is important, right? Because we humans have this very large brain and, that, and the very large prefrontal cortex. It's, in fact, it's about twice as large as we'd expect if our brain was just scaled as that of an ape. And that prefrontal cortex is making decisions about um, the impulses we have towards risk-taking. And so it's very important, if you're going to, to write an evolutionary story, to understand how we're similar to our primate relatives, but how it's taken on a very different form. Hmm. Let me ask you, by the way, because I don't think I've taken the time, I, I asked you about... Uh, what you told these 100 young men in, I think it, you said, yep. Cambridge, Massachusetts, right. who were part of that phase of your study. Um, talk for a moment about uh, working with the men in Kenya um, and through your interpreter. Was it a similar sort of thing? And, uh, I mean, do you take the time to explain what testosterone itself is and I mean that sort of thing I mean yeah in those kind of nuts and bolts ways how did this play out differently in in uh, in uh, Kenya versus Massachusetts right so so we, the next we have not yet asked about risk-taking in Kenya we have asked about we have studied testosterone and its relationship to body composition and its relationship for instance to marriage um, married men have lower testosterone levels here in the U.S. They also do in the bush in Kenya as well, which I think is a fascinating finding. Um, but, but there, um, again, we explain what we're doing, and we try and be as you know, open and, and possible as we can about what we're doing. Now, they interpret it in their own way, of course. And there's a story that I, I like to tell, and, 
uh, when I was working with the Turkana, I was working with a man named Paul Leslie, who'd worked there for quite a while. And so he knew many of the families, and he was friendly with them. And um, we went to collect data at one site. Uh, he had worked with women before. And we went to one site and started collecting urine. And no problem. Men showed up. You know, we're kind of interesting thing. They hang around our camp. They like to see what's going on. We give them food and things like that. And that was great. We went to another site where um, Paul didn't know these people. And so we explained we wanted to collect their urine to understand about their reproduction, and we wanted to test for a particular hormone, et cetera. And they listened to us seriously, and then, you know, they said, wait a minute. We don't want to be part of this study. This must be witchcraft. Why would you want to know about our hormones and our reproduction for any other reason, their logic is, than to keep us from reproducing? Because that's their primary concern. Wow. And Paul said, wait a minute, you know, I worked with uh, this woman last time I was here, and you know she just had a baby. And they said, no, that's still, I'm sorry, why was just witchcraft, right? And then Eliud, our interpreter, said, you know, this is looking desperate because we wouldn't be able to collect any more data. And Eliud, of course, interpreter is a cultural interpreter as well, just a language interpreter. And he said, he said to them, you know what, these are Mzungu, white men. And Mzungu don't know witchcraft. And they said, you know what, you're right. They, that's exactly true. And they showed up the next day and allowed us to work with them. <laughs> so it's an old anthropological story. They have an internally consistent logic. Right. We were outside of it, you know. Yes. So so what saved you was your your ignorance about witchcraft. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in their in their in their eyes. Right. Uh, I don't think we've touched on this. What led you to this particular group in Kenya? I mean, uh, you had, of course, theoretically at least, available to you uh, any mails from any number of places all across the globe. Did anything in particular, or I'm sure something yeah, in particular, yeah. drew you to Kenya and to this particular tribe? Well, well, so like many things, it's a mixture of sort of purpose and happenstance. Um, I'm an anthropologist. I wanted to study uh, males in... Uh, difficult ecological, nutritional conditions, et cetera, right? And this group fit the bill. Also, I happened to be at the University of North Carolina at the time, and Paul Leslie, who was already working there, was there as well. So it just made sense to go work with the Turkana. Now, I worked with them for, I don't know, about five years maybe, and then there just got to be too many guns in the area, and it got to be too risky. So then I started working with another group called the REL. And again, nomads, northern Kenya, and um, Elliot Fracken, who's an anthropologist who worked there, was sort of available to help me make the initial contact. So um, particular setting that I was interested in and happenstance. Now, why would somebody like this, I mean, a, a nomad in Kenya, want to do this? I mean, are they given some sort of incentive to participate? Right. So we, so we give them an incentive. Um, we give, we've given, done different things. We could give them, um, for instance, maize meal. Uh, the Turkana really love tobacco, and we gave them tobacco. We gave them sugar and tea. Um, we do something similar for the REL. And then, and then what we're asking for is really 
you know, two or three hours a couple of days. So we're also, they also kind of enjoy doing it because they get it because it's interesting, you know. But, but, of course, we want to give them something in return for their time. And in addition, we try to do something that will help them, uh, and that varies. Uh, for instance, the next time we go back, we're hoping that we can maybe start a little project that they can use just regular soda bottles for disinfecting water. Hmm. Um, so that's a, you know that's another motivation for them to to work with us. We're speaking with Ben Campbell, professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, and he is going to be speaking tonight at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. Uh, part of their Science Night series, examining this thing called Young Male Syndrome, trying to understand what is behind risky behavior among young males. So just to finish up in the next uh, next couple of minutes, uh, help us understand just how powerful a connection there is between testosterone and this behavior and the way in which that connection uh, is 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 quantified. I mean, what's the means by which right. uh, you 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 can even clarify that that sort of answer? Right. So so of course there are many things that are associated with say risky behavior or this you know financial risk taking or sensation seeking. Um, so we measure we measure our outcome variable whether it's financial risk taking or sensation seeking or we have another measure called time delay with standard questionnaires. But then we use a statistical technique called regression that looks at the relative amount of change in that continuous outcome variable and our continuous measure of testosterone. And that then we can attribute how much of the change in, say, risk-taking is associated to the change in testosterone while holding the change in, finance, in, in uh, facial masculinity constant. So you do that statistically. And what we see, for instance, with financial risk-taking is that uh, testosterone and facial masculinity together account for about 22% of the variation in our measure of risk-taking. Whereas testosterone and facial masculinity, say, account for about 6% of the variance in boredom susceptibility. So that's one reason why it looks like financial risk-taking is such an interesting measure. It's much more powerfully connected. And, and, and in some ways, that's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure most of us would, would assume that, and it doesn't sound like you assumed that going into this. That, that's right, and, and that's what's one thing that's so fascinating to us now. Wait a minute, what does this mean? How, how, this looks like a really strong finding. How, how can we explain it? Um, let me give you another example here. We also looked at a gene called the DRD4 dopamine receptor gene that's been associated with novelty seeking. And it also uh, predicts financial risk-taking. It predicts about 5% of the variance. Now, some of our colleagues have said, so what, 5%? Well, actually, that's a huge amount for a gene to predict in terms of behavior. There have been now three huge studies looking at the genes that predict height. And it turns out that these three different groups who all looked at thousands of people found, that, found something like between 10 and 20 genes were involved. But altogether, 
they predicted no more than about 4% of the variation in height. Hmm. So to have a single gene that predicts 5% of the variance in a behavior, that's intriguing. Right. That brings up all kinds of <laughs> possibilities, some exciting, some quite unsettling. Yes. I mean, I mean, it's still only 5% of the total variance, right? So that means 95% um, related to other things. Right. And but even 5% means that, hey, that's an important factor, especially in terms of evolution. Right. So when somebody studies something like this, and this is perhaps even a premature question, uh, what ultimately is, is its tangible usefulness? That is, what might we do with this understanding about testosterone and its connection to risky behavior among young males? Well, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful question. And while this may seem tremendously esoteric work, in fact, it's quite topical. Um, my colleagues, John Coates and Joe Herbert at the University of Cambridge in England have just done a study of London traders, London financial traders, and they find that um, their performance in trading is predicted by their testosterone levels. And this is looking within the men. So they looked over eight days, and they could compare within men. And the days that the men's testosterone, morning testosterone was higher, they did better for their company in terms of the trading. So, and it turns out that you find the opposite. The days in which the market was very uncertain, the men's cortisol level, which inhibits testosterone, was higher. So they suggest that, in fact, um, this might be amplifying cycles in the market. If you're successful and your testosterone levels go up, and we have some evidence for that, then you're going to take more risks. And if you start doing poorly and your cortisol level goes up, you're going to start taking less risks. So you have a bad market and things start going downhill and start spiraling downhill, and the traders may be part of that. Hmm. <laughs> now, now, here's the thing that's so important about that, because, there, because that's just one study and it's an interesting idea, right? But people have talked about markets, Alan Greenspan talked about markets associated with irrational exuberance. And one thing it does look like is testosterone leads to a kind of, we don't know what to call it yet, a kind of confidence. But it's not, it's not quite confidence. It's an outgoingness. It's a willingness to take risks. And what we see in primates is the need to take those risks are increased under unstable social conditions. And under unstable social conditions for primates, they have a hard time making and understanding the value of things, right, the social value of things. What's the problem with these debit swaps? As I heard somebody on an NPR station say, nobody knows how to value them. So that makes it inherently risky, and now this natural propensity for risk-taking may start to you know, seep into the system. Interesting. And so... You're suggesting that what we have been talking about uh, could be a very significant factor in how we find ourselves in this current financial crisis, and that what has been talked about in terms of extensive behavior uh, perhaps 
has a link to this kind of study you're doing. Yeah, and I, no, and I really think I think that understanding the internal dynamics of of the traders, their social circumstance, and their hormonal responses that yes, may be definitely insightful. Fascinating, and of course, we could probably think of other sectors of 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 human activity where we tend to see many more males than females, where a certain culture might spring up. And, of course, among them, one thinks about uh, leadership in the military and certain decisions that perhaps uh, get made either uh, in, in, in the command center or, or perhaps in, in, in the heat of battle. Uh, have you thought much about those potential connections? Yeah, so I think the military one is is a very interesting one. The corporate one's interesting. I'm all, I'm currently trying to get uh, going with some colleagues at University of Chicago a study to look at exactly what you're talking about, how women deal with this very male-dominated sort of corporate executive world. Uh, but the military one is really fascinating, and I have a colleague, especially a colleague, Richard Rangham, who's really been interested in trying to understand if testosterone leads to what's been called this overconfidence factor in the military and therefore making a kind of overreaching um, military decisions, right, that lead to what's called military incompetence. Um, I think that we don't quite understand, again, as I say, what testosterone does. It's not that it makes men more overconfident. It's that it changes their sort of context for what is they, what are the, what's the gain they're going to get and what risk are they taking. Hmm. So it's a matter of certainty about your decision, perhaps. And, and we might call that confidence. Right. Well, and it's, it's fascinating how sometimes you, you have a situation where great confidence is, is the best thing you can have going for you and, and other circumstances where confidence can kill. Yes. Uh, or too much of it, or misplaced confidence. Uh, all of this is fascinating stuff that we are are talking about. So your so your work goes on. I mean, I, I guess in a sense we just get the sense of of of, of the surface being scratched. Uh, that uh, that there is more work for you and for others to do. Uh, oh, oh yeah. On, I, on this uh, on this question alone. Oh yeah. So so. One of the next steps I'd like to take and have started taking, you know, the first steps towards is actually looking at the brain mechanisms that are involved in this and see if we can understand the effect, how testosterone is directly affecting the brain mechanisms associated with risk-taking. And then the other thing is I would like to major risk-taking in this group, in the REL that I'm working with in Africa, and also look if testosterone is related in the same way that it is here in the the U.S. And so one of the things right now we're trying to figure out is how do we measure risk-taking in a society that's not literate? And and how do we make our measure of risk-taking culturally appropriate? Right? We have to ask, we can't ask them, well, how much money would you be willing to give up? We may have be able to ask them how many cows would you be willing to give up? Um, hmm. And so that's a, you know, that's it's not obvious from the beginning how to do that. Well, we will be interested very much to see uh, where your further research takes you. And in the meantime, uh, you can hear more about what uh, has been learned thus far in this talk that will be given tonight at 7 o'clock at UW Parkside in room 103 of Greenquist Hall. Again, Young Male Syndrome, Evolutionary Perspectives on the Role of Testosterone and Risk-Taking. 
featuring University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Associate Professor of Anthropology, Benjamin Campbell. Professor Campbell, this has been fascinating, and I am really happy that we had the chance to speak, and very best wishes with your future research. Well, thanks, Greg. It's my pleasure to be on your show.